That, that's a tough question because, you know, the ABA is such a can of worms right now. You're listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles, a podcast that supports parents of children with disabilities by sharing the stories of individuals who have grown up with disabilities and the organizations available to help parents along the way. Stay connected with us by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment if you want to join in on the conversation. You've heard me talking a little bit about her over the last few weeks, but today we have the privilege of having Dr. Kristen Wegner with us. And I wanted you to meet Dr. Wagner because after I came across her Instagram account, I saw that she puts a lot of information out there for parents who have children who are autistic. And um, she also has a great book series that we're going to talk about near the end of this. And um, so I thought it would be fun to to get to know her a little bit better, hear about what she's doing. So Kristen, welcome to our show. Thank you, Tanya. It's great to be here. To start out with, just give us kind of a brief rundown of, of who you are, because I, I, I've seen more about you than they have, but, um, but we, 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 we'd <laughs> sure. like to start, start with that. Sure. I am a clinical psychologist and own a small company in rural western Wisconsin that provides um, therapy for um, young children that have autism or different behavior disorders. And then, as you said, also the author of the Brody the Lion children's book series. And um, how did you get started as a psychologist? Well, that's a long story. Um, So I started off um, in chemical engineering, switched to, uh, yeah. um, So I'm neurodivergent myself. So um, I was pushed into a very scientific field because that's kind of how my brain works. But um, I, I, it just didn't fit. So um, my bachelor's degree is in voc rehab and I was, working with um, families and I really wanted to work with children who are younger to make a bigger impact. So I went back and got my master's degree in early childhood education and was first I worked as a birth to three teacher and then I worked as an early childhood special ed teacher. And as I was working as an early childhood special ed teacher, one of the little guys in my classroom had autism. And so he would come in and he would know more um, the next day than he did the day before. And so I found out he, this is back in the nineties. I found out he was doing ABA therapy. And even though I had a master's degree in education, we didn't learn anything about autism. We didn't know anything about ABA. So I went to some conferences, um, learned more about autism, learned about ABA, and I actually left um, my job as a teacher and um, started working for the ABA company. Um, Fast forward a few years, I was fired from that ABA company because I am a square peg, I was told. Um, (laughs) And you know, I, I am. Um, that, that's what us, you know, neurodivergent people are. And so I went back and got my PhD. And at the time, you know, the only way um, to work with kids with autism, they they didn't have behavior analysts as mm-hmm. a um, licensing um, option back then. So I went back and got my PhD in clinical psychology and then opened my clinic and fast forward a couple more decades. And here we are now. So I would think you'd have an advantage because you have a better understanding where the kids are starting from. Um, I have I have multiple advantages because I didn't, you know, so many people go to college and they get that degree and, and that's what they have. So number one, I've, I've, I've lived it. I understand it from a lived experience, but then having a bachelor's degree in disabilities, a master's degree in child development, 
and that PhD in psychology, yeah, I have a, a breadth of understanding from the lived experience plus all of those different approaches that has allowed me to pull from all four and create a therapeutic intervention that um, I just really haven't seen anywhere else. I, I really like that. I mean, from as a parent, I'm thinking what benefit you're offering for those kids and for the parents behind the child because you can see the educational side of it. You can see all the different pieces coming together. So I, I, I think that's great. I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I, yeah. I think, I think if, well, and, if, and the adult side too, because the first five years working with adults. So, right. um, you know, so I started with adults, then went way early. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Plus we lived it, you know, we got that part too. Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, and, and you lived it during a time that was harder being a child because I, I am finding that this this is a the the field of of autism research has changed so much just in the last few years it seems and looking back at where we started what not even a hundred years ago with even talking about it so um so just seeing the the wave going beyond with that in the future I think I think each generation hopefully will have an easier path than what those of you who, who were young had with it um, so, and, and I can, from a parent's point of view, I can understand some of those stresses that you had had because of what my kids went through, but, um, but I'm hoping that things are better now as an adult and you're, you aren't being kicked out anymore. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> uh, maybe <laughs> there's a lot of non, non accepting people out there that don't understand the abrasiveness and the concreteness and the, um, you know, as, as, as intelligent as I am and as much as I know that I shouldn't say certain things, sometimes you just say things that are factual um, and people are offended by them. So, um, you know, li life is, is certainly easier as, you know, as an adult, but um, I think life is still hard for, for people that are, are neurodivergent. I, th I think you're right on that because even as adults, especially adult women, I think we're more sensitive to our surroundings and whether we're being accepted or not. I mean, look, look at social media where, where that is. People are, are driven sometimes by their acceptance of others. And, um, and there's always a story behind the behavior, no matter who you're talking to, but it's, it's hard sometimes when we put our emotion in front of us to see beyond our emotional response to something. And we're all, as, as you say, we're all coming differently from our emotional response to things. So, um, so maybe, maybe this is, this is for our parents as well as our kids today, our conversation. Oh, absolutely. I, and isn't every conversation, I mean, we all can learn. And, and one of the things that social media has taught me is when there is something I don't agree with, it's even more important that I listen because trying to see something from another person's point of view, from another person's perspective, it can teach us anything. So um, just that we were chatting before um, you know, we started and you were talking about what we can learn and who your audience is. And, and even if the, the people listening have no, don't know anything about autism, you still can learn information. You can still right. learn to be more accepting of people who you don't know what their situation is. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so much to learn. Yeah. So we're going to transition now to our younger age here, because one of the pieces that when you and I first talked um, was that we wanted to talk about the importance of early diagnosis for children who are autistic. So let's start with maybe what, because, because at first 
the child's just a baby. They don't know anything yet, but the parents may be seeing some things that they need to be questioning. So what should parents be aware of to know when they should start asking some questions of their pediatrician or who, who, who they should start asking? Um, yeah, um, often not a pediatrician. Um, pediatricians see, you know, their, their specialty is not, not autism. And so very often when parents of autistic children bring up their concerns to the pediatrician, many, many pediatricians say, oh, wait and see. Oh, a lot of boys do that. Oh, well, we'll check back in six months. And so if there is a parent who is thinking that their child is unique, is different, um, or is, you know, maybe has really just never slept, they're not sleeping through the night, they... Um, you know, just they, they're screaming when it's bath time. They can't tolerate their nails being clipped. Um, and then we can go into the other things that are, you know, even more autism specific. But you don't need a physician referral to do an autism diagnosis. And so many people don't realize that. Um, you, you are, many insurance companies do require a uh, medical doctor's prescription to do therapy, but not to do the intervention. So there isn't any insurance companies that I work with as a clinical psychologist that require me to submit a referral or a prescription. So okay. any parent can call and say, I want to um, have my child evaluated for autism. You don't need to talk to your pediatrician or to get a referral. If you want to get an evaluation, you just call. And okay. then we can talk about the, the wait list because I don't know what they're like in the big cities, but even around here, if you're going to Mayo Clinic or Marshfield Clinic is a big clinic where we're from and any of those bigger clinics, you're gonna be waiting six months to a year. And, and that's six months to a year where a child is maybe missing opportunities for language development right. or dealing with, um, you know, sensory overload or not navigating or engaging in self-injurious behavior or meltdowns or, or any of those other things. So th there shouldn't be a wait. And so um, getting that diagnosis and finding a small clinician, there are lots of us out there. And so, I mean, there, there's just so much work that a parent has to do. Um, and so if you try to go through those traditional routes, that's when you're going to hear the stories about they got pushed back and they had a wait and then their child's five and their child's six and then they're finally getting this referral and they're getting a diagnosis and the parent knew from the time the child was a year old. Um, okay. I do, you know, right now at our clinic, we have three 18 month olds. Um, and I, I diagnose as young as 12 months. And so, you know, there is, um, you can see autism at 12 months old. Okay. I was going to ask that. What's, what's the youngest age that, yep. that they oh. may start questioning this? Okay. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those parents knew from the, you know, three months, six months old, because you're, you're born with autism. You know, it's right. not something, even the people that think that their child was developing normally and regressed, there's some amazing research studies that look at the videos of their one-year-old birthday or even younger videos, and this the child was autistic. It just sometimes seems like it pops up because when the child is between birth and one, the child is so busy focusing on gross motor development. You know, there's such right. big developmental milestones. You're not expecting your child to wave hello or to wave bye-bye. 
And so when that, especially that autistic child is echoing and saying mama and dada, that's because the mama and the dada are saying mama and dada. Right. And they're echoing. Then as they get to be 18 months, they lose this language. Well, you know, yeah, they lost it, but maybe, you know, I mean, there, there's so many reasons behind it, but um, the, the, the signs are definitely there. Um, and, and the terminology can be really tricky because, um, you know, we want to celebrate autism. There's nothing wrong with being autistic. Autism is not something we need to fix or cure. And so we want to stay away from, you know, the symptoms or the red flags, but there are definitely um, traits or signs that we can see even as that baby is six months and nine months old, because okay. even when you are pre-verbal, we are using the gestures and the facial communications and the eye gaze of our caregivers to communicate. And that many times that autistic child isn't, and it's not just the eye gaze, you know, looking at you, but it really is the um, communication. And so how is that baby communicating that they want to be picked up? You know, are they reaching their hands up? Are they playing peekaboo? Are okay. they initiating peekaboo? Um, what are the social back and forth? Now, as far as toy play, when you are nine months old, 12 months old, you know, so much of your play is repetitive and self-stimulatory. So that can get fairly tricky. Um, but, but we can see it when we, when we set up the playroom and we have all of our developmental toys that are very age appropriate and the child is preferring to rub their hand or rub their face on the carpet as opposed to interacting and banging these balls together or you know pushing this button because the toys we have are going to provide that that shows us there's a you know a different sensory need that is um, being sought out um, and again, the language can get tricky because some people might call that non-functional. And so, you know, if a child's rubbing their face or their hand on uh, the carpet, as opposed to playing with toys, um, it's serving a function for that child, but definitely is not helping that child to develop um, some new motor skills or some other things. Okay. So there, there's reasons why we and we'll talk about that as we as we go on I know but there's reasons why we do intervention it's not to fix the autism or treat the autism but it is to help alleviate um some of the distresses and then of course to provide learning opportunity if you want to talk more about the signs it really is dependent on the age that we're talking about because what autism looks like in a 12-month-old versus a two-year-old versus a five-year-old versus a 10-year-old plus a two-year-old girl versus a two-year-old boy, True. not to have gender, you know, stereotypic norms, but autism in girls definitely looks different than autism in most girls looks different than most boys. So there's, there's so many things and there are a lot of resources out there. Um, but the biggest ones are going to be that lack of social um, initiation. They're not asking for things. When they want a cookie, they might be bringing that um, container and putting it in your hand or taking your hand and leading you over. They're not pointing and attempting to communicate um, 
or they're, you know, some of the kids who are very verbal, maybe they're trying to get it themselves. They're climbing up onto the cabinet to get it themselves, or they're just standing in front of the refrigerator and having a meltdown. Um, and so the, the not being able to request, um, not understanding that social back and forth, and often with the little ones, that looks like um, help. So if you think about when a child is needing help and you go over to, oh, you know, mommy can help you, and you go to help them with whatever, that autistic child doesn't understand that you're trying to help them and often will perceive you, even though your words are saying, Mommy will help you. I will help you. They think you're trying to take this thing away oh, and yeah. they get really upset. And so they pull their hand away and it might look like they're averse to touch, but often it's because their perception is that you're trying to take this away or the answer is no. Um, and so we want to look at how um, they're responding to help. Do they understand that socially teasy kind of play that I'm going to get you the teasing um oh no you don't oh, oh no that's going to be mine and not that teasing is nice that's a whole nother whole thing but but that silly back and forth I'm joking I'm playing I'm having fun right a lot of time those those autistic um toddlers don't understand that um so those are just a few things I think it's really important the part that you shared about not needing to wait for the pediatrician to tell you to go because that part I wasn't aware of. Um, but knowing that you can go to a private clinic as well and knowing too that you can go and make that appointment yourself. So parents listening, keep make, make a note of this. Um, if, if your child is young and you haven't had these conversations yet or had any testing done, you can take, take this in your own control and make those mm -hmm. calls yourself. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Once a parent is having some questions, or they've had that early diagnosis now, what's important for them to know about early treatment? Oh man, um, that, that, that's, that, that's a tough question because you know the ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, is such a can of worms right now. And, and we could spend hours talking about the history of ABA, what is horrible about ABA, what has gone wrong with ABA, and also what is amazing and awesome and great about ABA. And so, you know, like most things in life, we have that big pendulum that, that is, you know, shifting back and forth. And, and if we look at, you know, the last 80 years of autism and, you know, the only children that were ever diagnosed as autistic were those that had um, co-occurring, more than likely also cognitive um, difficulties as well. And those children were institutionalized. Right. And then there was this, you know, swing of, wait a second, we can fix, we can cure, we can make your child indistinguishable. Well, that certainly is better than locking your child away. And so that pendulum, you know, swing over here in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and then, you know, getting 90s, we're going to start shifting a little, but, but you know, that, that next 30 some years, you know, when we have, you know, Ivar Lovas, and again, we can talk all about the negative, but but that's much better than the institutionalization. And right. we could even talk about, you know, the, the, you know, the countries that would euthanize children who are autistic. And wow. so, mm -hmm, right. So when you look and you understand, you know, these pendulum shifts, we're going to go from, you know, killing or institutionalizing to fixing and curing. We want to fix and cure. 
right? Well, then we realize, wait a second, there's nothing wrong with autism. Right. And, and now we're getting here. But sometimes because if people are only seeing, they maybe don't know. And, you know, when you get old after however many decades on, on this planet, you, you, you learn that all things do this. Right. <laughs> you learn about this pendulum shifting. And so, you know, we, we don't have to say all ABA is terrible. Um, because it's not. There is ABA that, as a parent, if I if if I had an autistic child, I would never, even in my own city, I would not have my child attend that type of therapy program. But that doesn't mean that anybody that is doing something called ABA is bad. So um, what what we do is under that ABA um, because that is where the funding is, and. ABA is more than this bad thing over on this pendulum shift. And so the first and foremost thing that a parent would want to think about when they're looking at intervention is there, there should not be any indication about wanting to fix, wanting to cure um, autism. It should be based on a, on a strength-based, um, of course, addressing a child's needs, but not trying to treat their autism. So then we have to look at, well, what is it that the child needs? And every child is going to be completely different. There might be children who have difficulties in that sensory element and really would benefit from occupational therapy or children that might need speech therapy. But I've had many speech clinicians refer and OTs refer their children to our clinic to work with us for six months to help the child get into a position where they can benefit from OT and speech. Mm. Uh, one of our little ones that we just started, he spends all of his time taking objects, whatever they are, and putting them in one location. And then he picks them all up and he moves them to another location. And then he moves them to another location. And that child, the family can't wear a certain type of shoes because if they wear those shoes, he has to collect those shoes. Um, if you interrupt, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with this repetitive behavior. I'm not saying it's non-functional, but if this is how the child is spending all of his time, he's missing out on the social back and forth. He's missing out on other motor activities, the fine motor, the other big, big gross motor. He's missing out on language. So there's so much development that he's missing out on. And it's not that we interrupt it and stop it for the sake of interrupting and stopping it, but he does need to eat. He does need to take a bath. He does need to go to daycare. He does need to go to bed. And so stopping it is essential. And if that is interrupted, there is a complete meltdown and self-injurious behavior. And so that child needs intervention and not from a behavior, not from a, a speech clinician or an OT because he's not in a place yet. He's not regulated enough to even understand that we have fun things that we can do. And so I'm blowing bubbles and he can't even stop to see the bubbles because he has his objects. Right. But using, and again, now this is what the good ABA looks like. I'm not sitting at a table holding an M&M &M and saying, sit down and giving right. him an M&M. <laughs> 
I'm not saying look at me and I'm going to give him a, you know, a cookie, you know, not at all. Yes, I'm going to have cookies if he loves cookies, but I'm going to have the cookies in a container that he can bring me to practice requesting as a nap if he likes cookies. But I might also take all of those little objects that he likes and put them into containers if, if he's interested in getting those objects out. But I'm going to do all kinds of different things to try and help him understand that there's more to this world than just his special interest and just his repetitive right. behavior. And he can choose as an adult, if he wants to choose to, to do that, and that's his choice, that is awesome. But one of the things that stays with me from 35, uh, maybe even longer years ago, is hearing a, an adult autistic man talk about his special interest with elevators and how he loved elevators and all of his family and his teachers allowed him to do reports about elevators and took him to the Sears Tower and the Empire State oh, Building yeah. and, and you know, just helped to embrace. And this, again, we're talking, you know, four decades ago. And so this was such a huge thing. And he said, as an adult autistic man, the best thing about my life is I don't have to think about elevators anymore hmm. because he didn't want to think about elevators. And I know there are many autistics, especially the very loud autistic voices now that are saying my special interest is great and don't stop it and give that child whatever they want. But what if this is that child like that man with the elevators and he just couldn't help it? He, he wanted to do something else, but he couldn't not do something else. Mm. And so we don't ever want to force a child to stop doing something or to force a child to comply with anything, but we want to provide opportunities so they can make choices. Right. So they can understand that there are these other things like, oh man, this bubble play is fun. Oh, it is cool to watch these cars go down this ramp. That That is cool. Oh, boy, look at what this is. And, and when you unlock a world for somebody, then the, the possibilities are, are limitless. And so that early intervention is essential and whatever it is, whether it's OT, music therapy, behavioral therapy, whatever it is, it is making sure that you're providing your child with the opportunities for growth um, and self-regulation, co-regulation, self-learning, self-regulation, and then, of course, a dealing with any of those um, distressing triggers that are causing the um, distressing behaviors as well. But I think any parent wants their child to have choices. Thinking of, you know, we're parents for a short time when they're young. They have this full adult life ahead of them that our job, in my book, our job is to get them ready for that adult life. And so, so by opening those doors for them, you're right. They can always close the door if they don't want to go through it, but let's open the options for them. So as they go, so I, I, I like that perspective and I really appreciate you bringing up that controversial topic because it is very controversial from what I'm finding. The more people I talk to, depending on their experience from 20, 30 years ago, they feel very strong about that. And one of the other questions that I was going to ask you was, and you've kind of addressed this already, that some autistic adults really don't want their child to be treated for being autistic. And you're not really talking about being treated for being autistic. Right. You're talking about applying some therapies to help open their world for them. Right. But and, how would you respond to them? Yeah, that, that's what's so huge. I mean, I, um, I am, have been excluded from 
this autism tribe because of what I do. And so I, you know, there's people who are like me who don't accept me because my views are different. And, and to me, that is just mind boggling because isn't that what we're trying to do is to teach that differences are okay. And so I understand that there are people who were traumatized. I understand that there, you know, there was some bad things that went on that, you know, people said, you know, forced people to, to stop stimming and, and did behavioral contracts so that they could, you know, stop their interest and it caused trauma. And, and I went and got my PhD because I saw some of those things happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw a child who was, I call it the lion tamer moment. Um, and you know, the, my boss wanted me to, you know, corner this child into, you know, a chair and have him sit. And it's like, I don't, care you know i mean i want him to to learn to communicate but i don't have to sit in the chair so if he wants to hang out and slide down the stairs on a mattress i'm going to slide down the stairs on a mattress i don't have to be sitting in a chair i also um you notice my rocking chair i don't sit in chairs um i've never sat in chairs um even as a child i would sit sideways in chairs um and my when i was a kid i couldn't wait to grow up so i could buy my own chair so i could sit sideways in a chair um I couldn't do it. So I understand the autistic adults and, and my heart just breaks for them for the trauma they experienced. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek out intervention. Now, an autistic adult with an autistic child has a perspective that a neurotypical parent can't possibly right. have. So that, neuro, that, that neurodivergent adult who's raising a neurodivergent child may be able to offer so many of these things that that child doesn't need therapy. That parent might be able to understand and provide the, the different opportunities in a way that makes sense for their child because they see the world in a similar way as their child does. But for a neurotypical parent who sees the eyes through a neurotypical lens, they have no idea. They see their child's behaviors as different, as atypical, as um, naughty, as controlling, as manipulative, as, you know, we can go on and on and on. And so if we don't teach this neurotypical parent, so, you know, if we're going to treat autism, we're not treating autism. You know, any parent that works with me has to participate in therapy and work with us because bringing a child, well, you're not going to do anything to bring a child in and right. you know, <laughs> you're not picking. I mean, I can teach a child something, but, but we have to understand the world through that child's eyes. And it might take me a little while and I might need to do some work alone with that child to figure out what's going to click with that child so that I can then teach the parent, like, here's how we can connect with them. Um, but that's what a lifetime of, of, you know, a lived experience and 30, 40 years of, a professional experience allows me to do is to connect with that child and then help that parent to be able to see the world through their child's eyes because that's that's what good intervention does and then provide the child with those tools because we don't a neurotypical parent does not have to teach a child how to talk a neurotypical parent does not have to teach a child how to tolerate taking a bath or brushing their right. teeth or going to sleep or eating food or any of those things. And so therapy is needed because if the child is not sleeping, not eating, refusing to wear clothes, 
having meltdowns, engaging in self-injurious behavior, that child needs some help. And it's not maybe the child, the parent needs help. And so um, it's not to fix the child, it's not to treat autism, it is to, to help to see the world through the child's eyes and help those in that community be able to help the child reach their maximum potential. So I, so as we're talking, I'm remembering some situations with my daughter when she was young. So she had a high pain tolerance, would burn her hand without even knowing it, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just could just block out a high level of stoicism of things around her, um, but had some extreme fears as well. So new experiences were always hard. Any animal that was anywhere around would cause her to run into the street, run into a parking lot, anywhere just to get away from that one. She was just so focused on that piece. And so part of our path as parents, we're learning how to think outside the box for her. And and so I I remember with the dogs, especially calling around and um, decided to try to find a therapy dog of some sort. And I finally Mm -hmm. called the nursing homes to find who, 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 who are you bringing in? Are you using a therapy dog? And had these huge St. Bernard's that would come out. And she started inside the house just watching them walk in the backyard. And we right, had about exactly. six weeks of having them come out. And she finally would hold her brother's hand while he held the leash. <laughs> and that's about as close as she got. But yeah. it was a slow desensitization for her because yes. I couldn't have her run into the street. It was, and right. that, and that's what the bottom line was, and, her safety. And you, you knew how to do that, but that is what we do. And right. we have to teach other parents who don't know how to do that. And well, so I stumbled it, on it. It wasn't something I just knew yeah. how to do. I just, it, it just made sense right. to me to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, so I'm, so I'm thinking, you know, so if, if we can think of it that way, so I don't have a child who's diagnosed with autism. We spent a lot of time working on what's the root cause of what's happening and what's our goal. It's not to punish her, to make her get near a dog because it was so stressful, but we couldn't see her going through life without having a dog cross her path at some point and trying to get through there. The same with closed doors. It took years to to be able to close a door, (laughs) but it, but those things were there. So a lot of our kids have, have little idiosyncrasies that they need to work through Mm -hmm. to have a, functional adult life so that they can get out and enjoy their life. And right. so now these things are in the past for her. They're not issues. She will go down a right. slide on a sliding board now. <laughs> this, all those things that, that, that were big issues when she was three, four, and five weren't big issues later in life for her. Absolutely. And, and she can choose to never have a dog, to never go to a place where exactly. she knows there's a dog, and that is fine. But if the circumstance happens that there is you know, she's in the airports and there's a service dog there who then barks for whatever reason, or a narcotic dog that barks, she's not going to panic and end up, you know, distressed or harming herself. I mean, visually not being able to see, I know she's an adult, but, but she has those tools now. And so again, it's the having the choices, but also having the tools so that you don't have to lock yourself in a house because there might be a dog somewhere. Right. Well, and that's and that's where I, where I'm trying to get to is when we use the word treatment, it can be misunderstood what we're saying there, but I think it's more giving our kids the tools that they need to be successful, right. and um and helping them find those those tools. And and like any important change, instead of just closing the door 
and saying like, I, I mean, I, I, I have been, you know, I've been blocked. I've had comments. I, you know, somebody won't even, you know, talk to me or put me on their podcast because I do ABA. And it's like, instead of that, why don't we speak louder? Why yeah. don't we ask these questions and demand that ABA is done in a way that is neurodivergent friendly? Mm -hmm. You know, why don't we say, you know, we just have to make sure, you know, not let's, you know, throw us in jail. You know, I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm not abusing any child. Now, have there been abuses that were done in the past? Yes. And yeah. I'm not minimizing that. Absolutely. And those people should have been. But what we need to do now is to make sure that nobody is forcing compliance. Nobody is. Right. Um, using any, I mean, aversives went out a long time ago, but still maybe there's somebody that is doing that. And I have seen practitioners that have used, um, you know, chairs that have seatbelts on them. Wow. And, mm -hmm, and there, there's still, there's schools that still do that. There are, you know, places and they might say it's for safety, but, you know, I mean, any kind of restraint is illegal and, and, and should never be done. But we have to make sure that it's not just, no therapy it it is right. it has to be appropriate good you know high quality right and you're not talking about a lifelong of therapy treatment oh, gosh. you're talking no. about getting them to that next level yeah. and yes. being able to go back to speech therapy or whatever it is that they were coming from right um i'm actually i'm trying to work on a post right now about the um like some top five or the top 10 signs that you would know that it is a like therapy to run away from. Um, and, and that would and be so, interesting. Yeah. Because that we need to be able to, to say, um, you know, I mean, I've done some before on what questions to ask, but you know, in watching a therapist work with your child, you should be able to to see when that therapist is is working. First of all, if they say that you can't watch them, then that would be one that you should run away from. Yes, I <laughs> think so. That yeah, anybody that prescribes your child must do thirty hours a week, or they must do forty hours a week, and they, you know, or they're not going to achieve this. That is, you know, you run from that because yes, there are children who benefit from having somebody help them. 30, 40 hours a week. I mean, I have a, I have an adorable, sweet child who without intervention is dangerous. I mean, mm -hmm. she has no, no awareness of dangers whatsoever. And she would put anything in her mouth and it is exhausting. I mean, think about being a parent. She can't be in daycare because oh, there's right. no daycare that would, that would take her. And think of that parent who has to be there 24 seven and mm -hmm. ensure her safety. And they lax her in all the cabinets, but I mean, she'll eat the dirt out of a plant. She will, you know, climb up onto, you know, she just has no safety. If that parent can get somebody that's helping to that child to be safe, and embrace her uniqueness that that child will benefit from that level right it might be another child and family that needs one hour a week you know so there should never be you you must have this or this will happen that would definitely be a kind of therapy to to run away from and we're we're already talking about some of these but um but just i just wanted to specifically make our listeners aware that 
what we're looking at now are some of those tips for parents of young children. So do you have any other tips that you want to add for, for the parents themselves, especially thinking of the parents whose child has just been diagnosed as being autistic? Oh, there's so many and it's so unique because it really depends on, on what the parents' knowledge base is and what their support system is. And it always amazes me how much parents don't know that is available. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, trying to, you know, just getting, getting so much, you know, so much information and, and there are so many resources because if you're, you know, driving your child to music therapy and then you're driving them to physical therapy and then occupational therapy and speech therapy and then maybe the behavioral therapist, I mean, that's a lot of gas and gas is really expensive right now. And so even if you have a commercial insurance, many children that are autistic would be eligible for Medicaid um, either through the social security income program or the individual state programs that have a waiver that give medical assistance to um, families that are above the income level. So even though you don't qualify for medical assistance because you make too much money, a child with um, a disability can get medical assistance. And part of that medical assistance can help reimburse the gas mileage for driving to all of these appointments. And so it's like, if you didn't know that there is medical assistance available, so you don't have to pay for that deductible, I mean, that's important information that there are, you know, a mileage reimbursement program, that there are waivers. Many, many states have additional waiver programs in Wisconsin, it's called Children's Long-Term Support Waiver. I forget what it's called in Minnesota, but, but each state has different waiver programs from the federal government that helps to pay for respite care or fences or those locks on the cabinets or alarms on the doors. So many of our autistic kids don't sleep at night. And then if you're sleeping, if God forbid you actually fell asleep and your your toddler's awake and opens their door. I mean, I had a child years ago that climbed out of his window and went to the neighbor's house and was, you know, getting some cookies from the cabinet. And, wow. um, and there's so many horror stories that, yeah. you know, that parents can talk about. And, you know, what if that child had gone to the pond or into the street? Right. And so there's alarms on your windows that you can get or alarms on your doors. And so there's just so many resources. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk about therapy or treatment or intervention, it's just resources, it's tools because raising an autistic child is um, challenging and everybody's challenge is different. What about all of, you know, if the child is school age and needs help with those resources to get IEPs or 504 plans or all of that. And then the school says, oh, they're not gonna qualify because the educational diagnosis for autism is different than the medical. And so he doesn't have an academic need. And it's like, well, yeah, he doesn't have an academic need, but he, you know, school is more than just passing tests and so um, how do we advocate and help that child get the resources that they need in school and so you know when I when I talk about what tips a family needs it's so hard because there's just so many and every situation is so different but it is um, finding somebody that has those answers and I know how difficult it can be Um, and you know how difficult that can be but it's just another one of those things. There is support and there are resources. And so I guess my biggest tips would be don't take no for an answer. Um, You know, don't take, oh, we have a, you know, six month or a one year waiting list. 
you know, just go somewhere else and, and, and call somebody else and call somebody else. Switch doctors if you have to, switch dentists. You know, if you're taking your child to get their, um, their doctor appointment and you call ahead and you say, does my child need shots today? And they say no. And then you get there and they want to get a, you know, give them a shot. It's okay to say, no, I am not prepared for that today. I'm not giving that to my child. And, and parents don't realize they can say that to their, right. their doctor, but you can, you can do so much or you can call and say, and that this information is all in our doctor book. And we can talk about that too. And we shift to that um, because each of our books has tips and tool sections in the back of the book. So in the doctor book, we're talking about those things um, specifically that you know, you can take control of your child's medical appointment or their dental appointment. You can say, I want the first appointment of the day and I'm going to stay in my car until you're ready. So I don't have to be in your waiting room. You can text me. You know, you can say, here's what it's going to look like when we come in. And, and people, they don't know that they can control. And again, I, you know, when, when we started this interview and you had asked me about how I haven't been kicked out or, you know, fired recently, um, this is where people don't like me very much because I don't really care if people don't like me. I'm going to advocate and whether that is I'm calling for, you know, one of my patients or I'm calling for, um, you know, myself or my husband. I mean, this is what we need. And I'm not going to take no. And especially the secretary that's just not how the protocol is. Well, that's not how we do things right. here. And then you say, well, then let me talk to your supervisor. And it's okay if they don't like you. And I think that's hard for a neurotypical person. Um, those of us that, you know, don't, haven't been liked our lives, you know, we're, we're used to being unliked. So we're, we're going to forge through it. But it's okay to say, no, this is what I need. Because having that appointment that is successful for your child, um, mm -hmm. or so I, I'm just on these tips now, and I could, you know, again, we could talk about them forever. So many of my kids have difficulties at the end of school appointments, daycare appointments, speech appointments, mm -hmm. because the therapist or the teacher starts talking to the parent about how the day went, how the session went, and then the child engages in problem behavior. And it's like, it's okay to call that therapist, that teacher, whoever it is, and say, I am not going to talk about my child in front of my child or when my child doesn't have something to do. And parents right. don't know, they, they're not empowered enough to know that they can control those situations. And so, so much of what I do is about the advocacy and ensuring that parents know they are in the driver's seat and they really can drive the bus. I think that that's really important. It took me years and years to get to that point because you're told to do this, you do this. And, and I was born in the sixties. So my whole schooling, you know, we were assembly line kids. That was, if, if, if you don't follow the rules, you're, you're out. That's pretty much it. And it actually took my son and his personality to teach me that I can question authority. It's, it, yeah. it's fine. So switching gears. So children who have been diagnosed as being autis autistic, do you have any advice that you would give to the kids themselves? So I also, as you can see, I'm opinionated and, and my opinions are different than a lot of people. Um, as a child who is different, as a clinical psychologist, and as an expert in child development, um, you should never tell your child that they are different until the child asks you, hmm. not 
you know, am I, do, I, do I have autism? But if your child is not ready to hear that they are autistic, we shouldn't tell them. And this is not saying that there's anything bad about autism, right? But there are people who think there are things bad about autism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And only one in 44 children are autistic. So that means in their classroom, they're going to be the only autistic child. And so if a child is African-American and in a classroom with all Caucasian, that child can visually see that they are different. And they might say, why are there no other people that look like me? If your child has a limb difference, they might visually see that there is something different about them. Why does nobody have, you know, why is nobody else missing an arm? But to say to a child that is not ready for it, oh, you're different. You have this thing called autism. What? I'm different? It can be devastating and it can be traumatic. And so I'm not saying you withhold any information, but we don't tell somebody that there's something different about them if they're not ready to to hear that. And then we can talk about autism and interoception. So we can talk about the five-year-olds that I've worked with, the six-year-olds, the seven-year-olds that can't even tell when they need to use the bathroom. You know, their system until, and, and I know a lot of little kids wait till the last minute, but we're talking a different system. We're talking this, this interoception and recognizing our body signals that we don't recognize when we're hungry. We don't recognize when we're thirsty, that, that high tolerance for pain, mm-hmm. because we don't recognize we're hurt unless we see the injury. Oh my gosh, yeah. if we see the injury, we're going <laughs> to create bloody murder, but we're hurt. But yeah, we broke our arm and we didn't even, you know, notice because that, that pain signal. So recognizing our body signals are very different. So we might not have gotten to that point of recognizing that we're different yet. We talk about being different. Like I talk about my kids. We talk about Brody being different. All of our kids talk about Brody. We talk about being different. We celebrate differences. We talk about different, but we don't have to label anybody. We don't have to label somebody as being blind, as being having down syndrome as being you know we're just human beings and so we don't have to label and say you are this everybody is different Mm -hmm. and so if we could just start to embrace um and i'm not minimizing autism pride by any means because when somebody is ready to say that's their um it's who they are nobody should tell somebody else they are something Mm -hmm. and so But again, that is my opinion. And so an autistic parent that has an autistic child and maybe their experience is different. And, and so they, they want, but to me, you wait until that child is saying, I don't think I'm like the other kids at school. And then you say, well, no, we're all different. No, I'm not saying that. I know we're all different. Susie is, you know, from China and, you know, Billy has darker skin. I'm not saying that. Mom, I'm saying that, you know, my brain works different, right? And then it's like, well, it does. You have this amazing thing called autism. And then we talk about it. Okay, right. But we don't sit the child down and have a conversation until that converse, the child is ready for that conversation. When, when I do any diagnosing, 
the first thing I do, I mean, I always greet the child before I even say hi to the parents, which most parents are really like, they like, why aren't you looking at me? It's like, well, I'm not here to interview you. Sorry. Um, and so when we get into the, the, the playroom, I say, why are you here today? And often the parent tries to answer. And even though I've told the parent ahead of time, I'm going to ask this question. I have to then like shush the parent and, you know, like I'm, I'm asking Johnny, you know, why are you here today, Johnny? And sometimes the parent has told the child, well, I'm here to talk about my behavior. And I say, oh, you want to do that? No, I couldn't either. I don't want to do that either. You know, um, sometimes the child is, I don't know why am I here? And it's like, I'm not going to tell the child why, you know, why they're there. Um, and we don't necessarily have to, you know, and, and I mean, I can talk about that. I'm a doctor, not the doctor that gives shots, the doctor that plays and the doctor that talks about um, how we feel and, and, you know, likes to read books and likes to play toys, you know, but that development and what somebody is ready for in understanding themselves has to come from the, 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 person themselves. It has to come from the child. And we have to take our child's lead in everything we do, whether it's play, whether it's reading books, whether it's learning, um, whatever it is, if we take the lead from our child, we'll know when it is appropriate to mm -hmm. have that conversation to explain to them um, this word called autism. You mentioned earlier about, um, just briefly, you mentioned IEPs and 504s, and I meant to ask this and I, it kind of left, left my brain for a minute, but, um, with an autistic diagnosis, now, if we're not looking at other things coming in, you still have probably some social, um, skills that you're maybe working on. What, 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 what would make the difference between a child having a 504 or an IEP coming in? Would it be other if they have a learning disability along with it. Are you asking about why a child with autism would need an IEP? Right, or why they would need a 504 instead of an IEP. Oh, well, um, they would need a 504 instead of an IEP because the IEP team determined that an IEP was not necessary. So, so you no instruction would be involved. Well, no, not necessarily. So the, the way the law works, you can qualify underneath the what's called handicapping conditions. So you could qualify for the educational diagnosis of autism. When you have an IEP meeting, you add, there's two questions, there's two parts. It used to be called the M team in the IEP. Now it's just called IEP. Okay. So you have the first part that, that says, is the child eligible for special education? So the child has autism. Yes, she meets these criteria, great. Does she need special education? The team could say no, academically she's not suffering and so she doesn't need specialized instruction okay. um, to, to meet her, especially when we start looking at standardized goals and what the, you know, testing, you know, she's, she's meeting all of these, you know, benchmarks, educational benchmarks, she doesn't qualify for an IEP plan. Okay. Then the parent can ask for a 504, so a 504 is accommodations for a child's need that doesn't qualify to have specialized instruction. Okay. But they're gonna get these accommodations, which might be the extra time on tests, it might be sensory breaks, it might be some play groups or some social skills. So they could get these things in a 504, okay. but they didn't qualify for an IEP. 
Okay, so my understanding was that a 504 would only be like for a medical issue where they're having to take a medication or oh. if they need crutches or some more no. temporary type things. Okay, so so a, a parent that has a child with an autism diagnosis shouldn't be upset if the team decides a 504 because academically, well, if they're up to speed, well, it would be all right. So, well, and, being, and, being, well, being upset that, that that's a whole different thing because <laughs> um, I don't I don't know what the school systems are like where you are, but where we are, um, we have very 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 limited funding, and as the years go on. Um, districts are choosing to not follow the rule of IDEA and um, they just say, well, this is how we do it in our district. And, it, and, and so they only offer certain things and they are, even though they're, they're trying to pretend it's what is in the best interest and what the child needs, it's not. And so, um, you know, if, if, if you, if your child has, uh, whether it's autism or has any other um, what the school considers handicapping condition. And you can look up in your state and you can look up what those checklists are that right. those teachers, because they don't show any of those things anymore. The meeting, yeah, we, also why I'm not a teacher anymore. <laughs> uh, but the, if you're, if you don't agree with that IEP team's decision, if you're happy with the fight and they offer a 504 and you're happy with that, that's great. If you are not happy with that, you should ask for a mediated IEP or even go to due process and you fight it. You know, okay. don't take what this team that, you know, doesn't want your support people there and doesn't want to hear because this is how we do it in our district. If you think your child needs accommodations or specialized instruction and the school is refusing it, you fight it. Um, and there, you might have to pay for it out of pocket, but there are many advocacy groups that will help pay for that. We'll get those lawyers, we'll bring in to do either mediated IEP or go all the way to due process. That is how we got IDEA in the first place. I mean, that is how, you know, we have made those strides. Is we have to fight for our, our kids. And so don't just, again, kind of goes to that doctor. Don't just take what somebody says, well, this is how it works. Um, and I mean, I have a child with very, very complex medical needs and physical needs. And they were trying to say to the parent that this was, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And they called and the state school, nope. And they had to do four times before finally then they're like, oh, well, yeah. Um, because you really have to advocate. And so knowing um, either you learning the rules or finding somebody, and there are so many advocates out there. And so it's recognizing, you know, in your area, who those advocates are, what are those organizations, whether they be parents, whether they be state-sponsored groups that help to advocate for whatever age your child is, whether it be in the school system, adult services, because you've got a whole other right. transition you can talk about there is where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking about not being enough services here. Let's talk about, you know, when the floor falls out from under you when, when the child turns 18 or 21. Um, right. So it is a, a job for a parent, that's for sure. Parents listening. My 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 words of wisdom are to to trust your gut and keep keep on fighting always because you, always trust your gut yes you you you're you're seeing your child more than anyone else does and and you know how how they're seeming what what your challenges are <clears throat> at school sometimes they're seeing them fresh during the day they don't get to see them after school and seeing that they've they they've completely lost it because all their energy was focused on surviving at school right so. Right. Well, I, I appreciate kids. that that yeah. 
that that feedback and support because these are the types of things I would love to have heard when my children were young. <laughs> it, it, it would have made it a lot easier. And, um, and like I said, it, it was a learning curve for us. We, we learned a lot through the years and I'm hoping that, um, that our listeners are learning a little bit faster. So now you gave us a little teaser while ago in, in your doctor book, but oh, I, wa I want to hear about these books. They, I love the name Bro to the Lion. I love oh, all the characters you. that you have in there. From Join us next week to hear the rest of Tonya's interview with Dr. Wegner as they talk about the Brody the Lion book series. You've been listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles. Any resources mentioned during this episode will be posted in the description. If you're interested in joining us as a guest, contact us through the links in the description below. Be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. We appreciate your support as we build this resource. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a new episode.